Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Welcome, you're listening to Women in Jazz. I'm Lou Paley. And I'm Nina Fine. Very excited to say we have saxophonist, band leader and educator Lakeisha Benjamin in the studio. Hello, Lakeisha. How are you? I'm doing okay, hanging in there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we kind of would love to really start from the beginning. I mean, you know, you were born, brought up in New York, right? Washington Heights, yeah. So what was it like growing up there for you? Um, for me, it was... um. You know, when you're a kid, you're not really thinking of like, oh my God, they're playing, you know, my favorite, you know, rap artist or whatever. But it was somewhat, now that I look back, a bit of like a melting pot in general because, you know, it's, it's a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. So there's a lot of Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and South Americans that live there. So they're playing a lot of merengue, salsa, bachata, cumbia, like a lot of, you know, Cuban music is happening. But my household is African American. So they're playing like, constant hip-hop and like r&b and soul and gospel so it just became a big cluster of sound to me because all of my friends at the time too we started music when we were like 10 or 11 years old so it became like a just our own little quiet independent world sure and what did you learn um growing up in such a, a musically vibrant uh community I think uh, if I look back on it early on, I probably learned that there aren't any boundaries to the music, you know, like if you're into classical music, if you're into jazz, if you're into R&B, if you're into country, they all have their origins in the same kind of place. And it's okay to kind of cross the barriers and, and, and like merge them together a little bit. Sure. So it's, it's, you know, not, not genre defining, it sounds. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some core to, to each style of music. I will say there is, um, the tr- there's a tradition to each style. You should learn and be fluent in the tradition of someone's culture. But there are ways to m- merge them together because, you know, when you travel the world for the festivals that are not happening, the thing a lot of us miss the most about being quarantined is that I could travel to London and play with a musician in the UK and have an amazing time and a different experience with somebody and we can still connect musically. So, mm, Yeah, interesting. I mean, what do you think that there are any, also anything things in particular growing up again in that vibrant kind of community that informed your musical practice as an artist? Um, Probably I've learned that when you grow up playing a lot of Latin music, like the, the rhythm is very crucial in that music, like the rhythm, the phrasing, you know, the feeling of upbeat and happiness, you know? So I think early on, I was always a more rhythmic player. So even when I moved on to funk and jazz, my style and approach to music has already always been a little bit more rhythmic bass rather than just you know playing the right notes sure 
let's tell about your your latest project I mean it's an incredibly ambitious project that you've put together um you know drawing influences from many different generations like why did you decide to start this project and, and bring these kind of generations of musicians and of legends together you know what is it about the cool trains that you love and that has inspired you so much oh that's easy um for me even like my my biggest jazz influences were John and Alice Coltrane. So I always tend to think of them like, you know, you think of them like the most perfect power couple. Those are the two I think of because they both represent musically the highest level you can achieve musically and success. And then spiritually, life-wise, how to have a family raise, you know, they just to me represent completely well, perfect, balanced individuals that were using their art form to heal and help people while at the same time, they were also pushing, you know, the, the, the barriers of music and challenging all of us musicians. So it just became a no brainer with that, you know? Sure. And, and, and talk, talk a little bit about the, the introduction, I guess, or, or the insight into the project, because bringing these two legends together, I mean, that's, that's an incredibly difficult challenge. So was that always the plan? I mean, how did it all start? It all started with, uh, I, I teach sometimes at Jazz and Lincoln Center in New York. And uh, they had asked me to play a show at their club, Dizzy's Coca-Cola. Yeah. And at the time I didn't, I was mostly working with my soul squad band, which is more funk and soul. And I didn't want to do that. And I, I thought that, you know, at Lincoln Center, they do a lot of tributes. And I was like, maybe I should do a tribute to somebody. And immediately I thought, Oh wow, the Coltrane's. So I ended up doing a John Coltrane tribute at first. And after it was aired on WBGO, all the you know presenters came, it was a big deal. And some festivals asked me to play after, but something after the show, it, it didn't feel like all the way right to me. And then I thought, I was like, wouldn't it be great to include Alice Coltrane's music because she's actually the person I heard before I heard John Coltrane. Mm-hmm. You know, so once I included her into it, And I, you know, I was kind of sitting at home planning it out, like, oh, I'll make a CD. And I thought it'd be a very, very quick process. And when I was sitting there, that's when the idea of the generations came because I'm very, very, very close friends with Reggie Workman. And I thought, how cool would it be? Because he had just called me to tell me he had won an NEA Jazz Master Award. I don't know if you know what that is there, but it's the National Endowment for the Arts. So they've named him like the jazz master, one of the five jazz masters for this year. They'll probably postpone it because of this, but it's a huge honor. And most jazz musicians don't get it until they're in their late 70s or 80s. So I thought to myself, wow, this man's been playing music with John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane his, almost his whole life. Art Blakey, Wayne Shorter. And he had to wait until 83 to get this award. So I thought, how many people in his generation are still alive and doing well, Ron Carter, Gary Bartz, and they're not getting their accolades while they're here. So that's what inspired me to call that generation because I discovered that there were people that were alive that had played with them, knew them, were friends with them, and had directly even been my teachers or my mentors and influenced me. So that's how I started with that generation. Mm, yeah, I think I think that's... Well, what's been so fascinating for me, I mean, not not only have you created a project here which, you know, has championed pre-existing generations, but you're also championing generations of jazz musicians today, you know, from Gary Barth to Crosby to Bruce Williams. So what was it like kind of working with all those musicians? And 
Oh man, like like a kid in a candy store. It's like <laughs> the, the the most fun you could ever have at one time. Because like on one hand, of course, it's, it's extremely intimidating to play with people of this level, right? But if you step back from that and you just realize you're about to play with like the most dream band you could ever play with, and they're not here so because you can play with their CD. They're going to play on your CD. They're all going to be in the same room telling stories about all the, the, the amazing times they've had with Miles Davis, with jazz legends. They're all going to be here eating and you get to like take pictures and hang out. And at the time, I didn't even have a manager. So there was no one in the room like, oh, look, he should get back to work. We're just all like 40 of us in there following my schedule of when we're going to play and when we're not going to play. Of course, we're getting to work, you know, but to me, it was like a once in a lifetime experience. I, I don't think I may, I may never experience that again, you know? It, it's amazing listening to you, Lakeisha, because I'm hearing story after story from so many different people connecting over to particular jazz musicians and the mixing of flavors and experiences it is exactly what you described in a candy store they're almost too much to that the flavor is overwhelming yeah <laughs> um and so I, I kind of taking that metaphor of flavor how how did you find balance in those spaces um as, as you say, being the band leader and organizing everything and ensuring everyone was playing um, versus being in the moment and being present with um, the nuances or the, the spontaneous things that might just come up? Well, I think I probably had more trouble being in the moment because I did, like, you know, I would be in the middle of a take and Greg Osby would be texting me, where's the door? How do I get in? And I'm like trying not to look at it, you know? but I don't want to leave Greg Osby out there, you know, and there's some elder musicians that they need help. It, it wasn't, it was hot outside. So that was good. But, you know, I, I, there were some moments where I was able to relax and calm down, but it was almost like something that you, in the process of doing it, it's just going by so fast and you just focused on, okay, guys, stop talking. Let's play, let's play. And then after, when it was all over, I kind of was like, Whoa, this is like a, a huge thing because even when I was looking at the, the, the generation between 70 to 90 while they were sitting there with me and talking to me, I was, it was kind of baffling because I'm thinking like, okay, this is Ron Carter. Who in the world is better than Ron Carter? So there's nobody, but John and Alice Coltrane. And then if you have that generation, some of the people in that 70, 90 generation were talking to like Regina Carter and Greg Osby, Bruce Williams, remembering when they were mentoring them and they were, I remember when you first started playing with Blakey, you know, and you were so, you started first started playing with Dizzy Gillespie. You were such a young person, so they're remembering that. And then there's the people in my generation remembering when we first heard of Regina Carter, we're listening to her CDs, and went to her show, and we first got a gig when they were on the gig with us. So it was so much reminiscing. Like there were people that were only supposed to come record at 12 noon, and then you know be there for an hour or two, then leave, and they would stay the whole day because it was just so much fun to be there and to like you know. When are you ever going to hear Ron Carter and Reggie working on the same CD? Yes. And and it's it's interesting. I, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which was about how the music of Alice and John Coltrane is healing. Um, and, and there's a spirituality and, and, and a oneness somewhere. Um, and so for you, I wanted to ask, the space itself sounds healing. I mean, how often do these musicians actually get to be in that kind of recording space together and share and reminisce like that? Um, but also for you, when was that first time that you felt that healing from the Coltrane's music? 
or in music I, I, yourself? I would, I would say the first, I mean, I, I've always felt that in music, but the first time I heard Alice, I heard Alice Coltrane, like I said, before John Coltrane, a friend of mine, Georgia Ann Modro, is actually family friends with the Coltranes. And she had visited Alice's ashram many times. So we were, we were like hanging out one day and she played me one of Alice Coltrane's CD. So I was listening, it was, and the song was Turiya Ramakrishna. So I'm listening to the song and I was like, oh my God, this is beautiful. It must be a love song or something. We would play this song over and over and over again. And at the time, you know, I was listening to the whole album and I had picked up a bunch of her albums because I decided I was a fan. And each CD was so different and electrifying. And back then I used to open the booklets and look at the players on the CD. And if whoever I liked, I would then start, if Pharaoh Sanders is on it, then I'm going to go start buying Pharaoh Sanders CDs. So I was looking through it once and I saw Rashid Ali and I had played in his band. So I took a note. I'm going to ask him about her, you know, and kept moving. And then towards the end of the CD, it said something about John Coltrane and thank you for being my support or something like that. And I was like, oh, look, she has a brother. So I went to Google and looked him up and I was like, whoa, this is 100% not her brother. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Once I looked it up, I saw that there were, you know, like 60 albums or something. So I said, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm more of a methodical kind of person. I said, I'm going to put these CDs in order and I'm going to listen from the beginning to the end. Wow. So when I listened to it from that way, I, I, at this point I had heard all of her music and then I'm hearing his music in chronological order. So a lot of saxophone players, you know, they come into Coltrane at different periods. Maybe the Giant Steps period, maybe Love Supreme period, maybe the Interstell Interstellar Space period. But I got to actually watch him grow the whole, you know, the whole way. So by the time I came out of it, it was such a complete picture of who this musically this person was that it, it was almost like, it's, it, you know, I don't worship people like they're gods, but it was almost like, wow, that in the span of like 15 to 20 years, this man has changed the world. <laughs> that That's incredibly intimate. Because if I think of how exposing it is for anyone to to release music, it's it's a part of an artist's being or self or um, what they're channeling. So as you say, to to grow with that musician chronologically, that yeah. that's incredibly intimate. Um, and so, when it comes to collaborating, because you it, you've played with so many different artists. Um, Stevie Wonder, Alicia Keys, Prince. Um, but in, in this project, you sought out the, the collaborators. And I wanted to know, what is it that you enjoy about collaborating? Or what is the what is the power behind that for you? Um, I, I believe that some people always think, like, you know, it takes, like, one person to change the world. And I do believe it takes maybe one mind to, to be the catalyst. But I, I do think that the collective is the the best way to go. Like a village achieving, trying to build a house is easier than one person. So even with my other two CDs, they were different styles. I've always been a fan of, I called my band Soul Squad because I was always a fan of getting as many people as you can get together on the same cause to make a statement. You know, like the, the more people that are in line and pushing something and putting that energy out, I think the bigger the effect. So I just think in terms of this particular project, because I'm constantly growing and, and moving forward, that it, it came into fruitation this way. Yeah. And so in light of that, when you first had this project idea and, and you really described to us how it was a seed and then it, it, it grew into something beyond that initial um, first concept. And I love hearing the serendipity of those moments. But when you were starting it, did you have a clear idea of how you wanted listeners 
to experience the, the message of the album? Or um, was it something that actually isn't defined? I wanted to ask that. It is undefined, you know, I, I think because when you look, when you, like now that I have the CD's all done and it's out and I can see it, I can see it from an outside perspective, how it looks like, wow, Lakeisha been planning this album for 10 years, you know? But I literally, June 2019, decided this might be a good idea, right? And then I still was on the fence because I said, how am I going to get the money for this? And then July, I said, maybe I'll do it. And then in August, we recorded. So it has the impression that, you know, I've been planning this and writing this and doing all this stuff forever. But two weeks before the album got recorded, I still was, I was still arranging the music. I had just started. So it was a lot of spontaneity in it. And it was a lot of like, you know, just going with the flow and, and kind of the, the exact idea of what living your dreams and trying to make them come forward. Cause each step of the way I was thinking, okay, how am I going to get the money for this? How am I going to call this person? You know, even in the beginning, I wasn't like best friends with Ron Carter. I had to like find him and be like, hey, famous guy, would you love to play with me? You know, and convince everyone and talk to them. So there was a process into all of it. And it wasn't, I just, the only thing I would say that I did have the insight is if I, I knew that all these people are, are such special players, Didi Bridgewater, they, they have such trademark things about their singing and playing that define who they are, that if I could write the arrangements to feature what they do the best, then that would be, that would convey the message of love because John and Alice Colchin have already provided the complete spiritual blanket. You know, we don't need to change their music too much. Their music has already had that purpose and it's had that purpose for like the last 40, 50 years, you know? So my goal was just to accent the strengths of the guests because I felt that way. I wanted people to one, walk away intrigued to find out who John and Alice Coltrane were. If you weren't a jazz fan, maybe you would look them up and support their music. And I wanted every guest on my project that it's, and when you heard them, you were so moved that you would support their projects and listen to them and, and Google them and find out who they are if you didn't already know. So those are like my ultimate goals. Well, well, I can definitely say um, as, as someone listening that I've definitely started digging into the treasures of the players on the album as well as yeah, really trying to dig into those stories. So I yeah. will say thank you for that. Um, and it's so lovely to hear the intention behind this kind of work. Um, because oh, it's a lot. And, yeah, and, and, and in light of that, um, it, it's, you know, we're, we're in a space where there are so many independent artists. I'm, I'm not going to bypass the fact that you have done this without a manager. Um, I really hear the level. Well, I have a work. manager now, but then I did not. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's huge. And, um, you know, you mentioned your friend, China Moses. She, too, doesn't have a manager. And she, when we had an Insta Live with her, she spoke about that a bit. Um, yeah. Because there's so much energy that goes into these kind of projects. And so from a personal resource place, um, you know, getting in touch or finding these musicians to, to link up with and, and ask if they'll co collaborate and so on, what are the biggest lessons that you've learned through the process or discovered of your own resources to get to that level and bring people on your side? I mean, there's two, there's two, there's two lanes in this, right? It's not just one road. Like one, you have to be smart and prepare yourself. Like all the jobs and gigs you do do, you have to be already at a certain level of accomplishment and working in order to save money in general, because you know, the world's expensive. But once you get past all the logistics and stuff, I've always felt that I never understood why musicians in particular try to do smart business moves and do things the right way and release this. 
at the right time. I understand you got to release things at the right time, but if the intention of your project is not to change lives and to put your whole soul into it, you're almost hurting the success of the project right there because that's the fuel that the managers, the agents, the promoters, the PR are using, what you're putting into something. So if you're just putting in, I'm going to make a CD and play some gigs and it's fun, that's not why people make love. I mean, make music. People make like music to have love and like to really change things. Like right now we're all in quarantine and can we even imagine the quarantine if there were no movies, no music, no dances? Like if everyone took all our electronics and like just sit here, there's no more arts. So I just I just feel like that should be the drive of an artist. You got to be smart with your business and you have to I'm almost be like resilient and never wavering in what you want. I mean, if you don't have a manager to do it, you've got to make the calls. You've got to call the people. You've got to call the musicians. You've got to get on the phone. you got to have the kind of spirit that you won't be broke. But after you get past that, which is hard at the same time to keep your integrity and your love for the music because the business can wear you down. So I would say if you can find a balance in that and just keep moving forward. Otherwise, you know, there's no point doing it. It's almost like music is like soldiers, you know? Yeah, I think I think that's really, really good advice. I mean, music is just a part of it. And, you know, we're, we're doing a masterclass tomorrow um, and it's all about building your brand. And I think, you know, it's it's so important for, for artists to have an awareness of, of who, who they are and what kind of message they want to try and get out. You know, it's, as I said before, you know, it's the music is, is, is just a part to the, to the puzzle, to the, to the moving machine, if you like. Um, I absolutely agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, so f- for those who haven't heard the album, I mean, how, how can they go up, um, about uh, finding it and, you know, what have you got coming up that you can share with us? Um, well, I can make it really, really easy. Luckily, you can you can purchase the album on iTunes. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on... I'm not sure what you guys have there, but you can also stream it on Tidal, Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube. Like, I've made sure that whether you have the money to, make the, to get the album or not, that you'll be able to listen to it because it was important for me that no matter what's going on that in your life, that people could actually hear the music. That was the most important factor for me. And... Um, it's funny because before the coronavirus came, you know, I had a chance where I could have not released the album because most people say musically it's not optimal to release an album when you can't tour it. And I chose to leave it out because I thought that during this worldwide crisis, this is like the exact concept of the album and what people would need. So if you, I think, I don't, I guess you have to learn how to spell my name, but it's L-A-K-E-C-I-A. And my last name is Benjamin, but most of my handles just have a B. So Lakeisha B, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. My website is LakeishaBenjamin.com, you know, and the album is called Pursuance, the Coltrane's. Amazing. Incredible. Um, well, Lakeisha, thank you so much for joining us today. Like, it's been such a pleasure and an honor hearing about, you know, your, your work and this latest album. And we're just so excited to hear about what's coming up next for you. Oh yeah, I didn't know if I should uh what's a plug because all the shows are on hold, so I could plug more publications, but I wanted to, you know, keep you keep you guys in the spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> Something else that we always ask our interviewees to do, which you have done, is pick two tracks um of female inspirations. And so we you sent us a few tracks because I know it's such a difficult task. <laughs> but um do you wanna tell us which two tracks you've chosen and, and why you chose them? 
Well, I told I chose Alice Coltrane, Turiya Ramakrishna, just so you guys could get an example of what actually inspired me to, you know, start the whole Coltrane like you know path and legacy. And then um, one of the highlights on the CD for me was Michelle and Deggio Cello. She's one of the musicians that I had actually never met, never spoke to, never had any real interaction with, but I had not worshipped her music, but been a huge fan of how she's able to play jazz albums, hip hop albums, R&B albums, folk albums, different instruments, track and produce herself, sing. You know, so to me, she was one of the, the biggest inspirations of all the people in the CD just because of her genre of fluidity. So I picked Michelle Diggio's cello's Bittersweet from Peace Beyond Passion album. Beautiful. Um, honestly, Lakeisha, it's been such a treat being able to speak with you. We are big fans of the album and um, we really wish you luck across this quarantine. But thank you for bringing healing music into, into our show and into the listeners. So thank you. 